think while she's uh, teaching now about how, how the, her story and how her project uh, has affected Luton and how something similar in your area of the ministry you're in could have a branch effect uh, in your locality. I think, I think God really today wants to, um, to start new fires, if you like, in different parts of the UK and to give everyone faith that he's doing a bigger work that we can be part of. So um, I really want to warmly welcome you, Rachel. Uh, let's give her a warm round of applause as we start. Great. Water. I'm going to need some water. Um, good afternoon. Um, it's a privilege to be able to stand here um, and speak to you all this afternoon. And it's really encouraging for me to see how many people um, have come along to listen. Um, I'm Rachel, I am the project director of selfharm.co.uk. Some of you may have been in the self-harm seminar this morning, so you'll have heard a little bit about it. As we go through the next hour, I'm going to share with you a lot more um, about selfharm.co.uk and also some stuff about myself. I'm very, very conscious that it's quarter to three on uh, Saturday afternoon, and we're kind of skidding into that hideous kind of graveyard hour of the day. Um, You've done a lot of listening already today, um, and you've done a lot of talking, and you've done you know, a lot of thinking. Um, there's nothing worse than when you're kind of doing a bit of public speaking, as any of you may know, to see someone nodding off. Um, but I will forgive you, and if my eyes start to go, then if you can just give me a nudge and bring me back into the room, that would be great. Preparing for today has been really, really difficult. Um, I'm very at home talking about self-harm. I'm a bit of a self-harm bore, in fact, and I could rattle on about it for a long, long time. Um, but I've had to take a sideways step in order to prepare for today, and I spent a lot of time praying and, and trying to work out what it was that I should be saying to you this afternoon. And I started to write my presentation, and it started going down a road that I wasn't that keen on. Um, so I deleted it and walked away from it, and then tried to sit back down to do some more writing, and it went in the same direction. So I deleted it, I got up, I walked away, I did a bit more praying, sat down, started writing, started going back down this same road, so I deleted it, and so and so the story goes on. Didn't quite get as far as throwing the laptop, but it came close a couple of times. So I've just had to go with what I feel that God wants me to share with you about making a difference locally. Um, so bear with me. I normally, when I present, have a whole range of gadgets and gizmos and tricks up my sleeve, um, but not this afternoon. This afternoon, I'm afraid, it is just going to be me talking to you um, for a little while. Making a difference. What does making a difference mean? It's a phrase that's actually used an awful lot in youth work circles. We do what we do. We work with young people because we want to make a difference. But what on earth does it mean? For the next couple of minutes, I just want you to turn to somebody that you're sitting next to, behind, in front of. If you're sitting very much on your own, then please come forward, make some friends and, and get chatting. And I just want you just to think for the next couple of minutes, what does making a difference mean to you? How do you measure whether you're making a difference? Off you go.
Okay. If you'd just like to start wrapping up your, your little conversations and start coming back, that'd be great. Could I have the next slide, please? So then, have you got a definitive definition of what it means to make a difference? Did you find that you had various different interpretations of it from one person to the next, from one job role to the next? Yeah, now you're starting to see the problem I've had in preparing for today. I am blessed with a two-year-old son. Um, he's going to be three in July, and he's just reached that age where he questions everything. So he questions everything he sees, everything he hears, everything he eats, everything he wears, everything. Um, and he will ask a question of me and just say, Mummy, what does such and such mean? What's this? And at the time, it seems quite obvious. And then I actually have to try and break down the question and formulate it into an answer appropriate for a two-year-old. And then I then realise just how difficult it is sometimes to try and explain what should just be really obvious. For example, does anyone want to volunteer to explain what is a bubble? No? Why is it windy? Mummy, how are clouds made? Now you see the problem. What does it mean to make a difference and how do we measure that a difference is being made? To illustrate my train of thought on this, um, I'm going to tell you a little story. Uh, and this is the bit that I didn't want to do, but I gave in and agreed with God that, okay, I'll do it. Um, you might want to get yourself comfortable. This may take a few minutes. Um, for anyone thinking of nodding off during this bit, I can assure you that everything I'm about to share with you is completely real. Um, I'm not standing here to sensationalise anything. Um, I'm in the process of writing a book, so I've got to keep something back so that you feel tempted to buy it. Um, but I'm going to tell you the story of selfharm.co.uk through my eyes as a 15-year-old. Clearly not 15 anymore. This is the story of how I saw it from the age of 15. It's basically my testimony, but you will see the relevance um, as we go on. Can I have the next slide, please? Okay, I was 15. Uh, I was a Christian. I was involved with a church. My parents were Christians, I had a happy home life, and I did really well at school. A new initiative was being set up in my hometown of Luton. Forty churches had spent some time thinking and praying and wanting to do more for the young people in the town. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever been to Luton, and I don't just mean for the airport. Um, I lived there for 25 years, so it, it does have a really, really fun place in my heart. Um, it's a very challenging town, it's culturally very diverse, um, and it is very, very quirky. For a long time, the main feature in the shopping arcade was a big round fountain um, with actual life-size flamingos all kind of perched, balanced precariously on top of one another. Um, I could go down the road of telling you the story of how my then 12-year-old brother and his friends poured bubble bath into it, but that would take us off on a real odd tangent, so I won't go there. Um, the Luton Church's Education Trust was set up. Forty churches came together and the Luton Church's Education Trust, or LCET, as I'm now going to call it, um, was born. Chris Curtis um, arrived to the town from Bristol and took up post as the only member of staff. Um, and he worked from a single dining room that someone in a local church let him use on a daily basis. That was his office. 
As I said, I was 15. I was a pupil at Ashcroft High School, and I was actually really excited by this new development. All of a sudden, there was a Christian Union type thing in my school. There was someone prepared to come into my school and give other teenagers like me who had faith a, a, a space during a lunchtime once a week where we could just kind of sit and have a think about what that actually meant to us. There was someone coming into our school who was prepared to say, God outside of RE lessons and actually start to make it a little bit more real. There are also a lot more youth events taking place um, thanks to Chris's arrival. What I haven't told you yet is that by the age of 15, when all this was happening, um, I was already very chronically bulimic. Um, It started as anorexia and it quickly propelled itself into bulimia. Um, My need to eat was too great to starve myself any longer and it was far easier to cover up to my family and friends what I was doing. Um, because it allowed me to eat in front of them and appear that everything was okay. LCET grew. Um, As the funding became available, so did the workers. Today, in 2011, it has 19 paid members of staff. Um, And they operate a number of different teams. One of the teams is a chaplaincy team, and they go into the schools around Luton, and they do RE lessons, they do assemblies, they do pastoral kind of mentoring one-to-one with young people. Um, In one of the schools at the moment, they've got a post box set up and they've encouraged kids from across the whole school to ask a question. And basically, if you were to meet God, what question would you want to ask him? And it's amazing the response that that post box has had. And there's some really deep stuff, really deep stuff that's coming out of that. Um, Questions such as, why did my mum die? Why did you take her from me? questions such as if you're such a provider why can't my family afford to feed me properly really really deep stuff which is giving us a real insight into actually some of the issues that are affecting young people they also have a therapeutic team some of you in the seminar this morning would have met Donna who heads up the self-harm work in the therapeutic team Um, they also do therapeutic work um, in young people who have got a diagnosis of ADHD young people who are in care um, young people who struggle with anger management issues And there's also a compass team which works with young people who are or are at risk of being not in education, employment or training. As of yesterday, a new organisation was set up called Youthscape. um, And it's now the umbrella, it's on our banners at the back, it's now the umbrella term. And Chris has now taken over in Youthscape because LCT is just getting too big. And what a great situation to be in. Um, We also now have two national projects as well. We've got schoolswork.co.uk, which some of you may have come across as part of your ministry, and then also selfharm.co.uk. Two national projects have emerged from local work. Two national projects have emerged from what started as one man sitting in a dining room, looking at a map of Luton, trying to work out where to start. Two national projects that exist thanks to a vision of a group of churches back in 1993 when I was 15. Which means I'm nearly 33 for anyone who's trying to work it out. (laughs) Several years ago, um, the therapeutic work of LCT really, really took off. Local schools were referring young people in their droves um, to undertake six-week courses in anger and and all the other courses I've mentioned. Um, And, of course, self-harm. By this time, LCT had its own dedicated building. Um, The man sitting in the dining room um, progressed to being in a back office in a church. It then went to the top floor uh, of a semi-detached house in the middle of the town. And and now we have a four-storey building um, 
bang smack, literally next to the town hall, literally next to the town hall, um, there's, uh, we've got a chapel down in the basement where young people can go and sit on beanbags and reflect and think about things that matter to them. We've got a big drama space. We've got a cafe that runs twice a week thanks to a bank of very, very dedicated volunteers. And a few years ago, the self-harm work, the local self-harm work, was developing in such an incredible way that it started to generate whispers of, you know, could we take this further? You know, can we do more with this? Is, you know, are we daring to kind of think too big? Are we going to be disappointed with this? Local kids in Luton are really, really benefiting from the local self-harm work. But how could we try and take what we were doing and apply it nationally? Was that even possible? It was working, f you know, for us and the, and the kids that we had coming through our courses. But is it possible? Is it okay for us to think big and dream like that? It took several attempts. Um, we secured some funding to build the website um, a couple of years ago, and the website finally went live in November. It was a proper labour of love to, to get it up and running. And at the end of 2009, we secured a second grant, which enabled me to take up post um, as project director. Up until this point, I was volunteering. My story, however, took several different turns. Um, the schoolgirl that I was, having the difficulties that I was, progressed to sixth form, albeit with good GCSE results. My weight fluctuated according to whether I was eating uh, or starving or binging. Uh, my relationship with God floundered um, in much the same way. I had the support of my youth leaders. Um, they were fantastic. And my parents, they did their best to try and understand what it was that I was going through. And I think it's only since I've become a mother myself that I can truly appreciate just how difficult it must have been for them. I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but now I've got my little boy. Um, I see it through completely new eyes. I won't go into specific details of various events that happened um, around about this time, but needless to say, I, I did sink pretty low. Uh, much to my surprise, however, when I left Sixth Form College with below average A-levels, um, LCT agreed to take me on um, to be part of their GAP team. It was the first time they'd run a kind of internship and somebody saw something in me. They were well aware of the difficulties that I was having, um, but somebody saw something in me. And without wanting to give the punchline away, this is kind of where I'm going with this, this afternoon. On reflection, I am, have no problem with telling you that I was probably the worst intern any organisation could have been lumbered with. Uh, there were five of us on the team in total, three paid workers including Chris, and then Martin Watson, who was around a little while ago, and myself as, as the interns. Um, Participating in team retreats was a complete nightmare because we'd go out for a meal together and I would sit there and stare at a bread roll and not say a single word throughout the entire time. Such was my inability to eat in front of anybody. Um, I was extremely passive participant in prayer meetings. Um, I was completely convinced that God actually wasn't interested in anything that I could possibly think of saying to him. And so I just didn't bother after a while. Somehow, somehow I survived the year without being sacked or given, no, without someone giving up on me or, or anything else like that. 
and I went to university in South Wales, which just at the time seemed like to be a really good idea, and it was basically because I had nothing, no idea of what I should be doing, and it just, there's that natural progression thing, isn't there? You know, you kind of go to school, you drift into your A-levels, and it's like, oh, might as well go to uni now then. Um, I, I went to study um, writing, German, and media studies, which should give you some reflection of what my mental health was like at that time, <laughs> because it was a very, very random, um, very random group of subjects. That was in September 1997. By May 1998, so before I even got to the end of my first year, I was hospitalised, having made a very serious attempt on my own life. Um, by this point, I was self-harming prolifically, to say the very least. The eating disorder had spiralled out of control to the point where I was then self-harming as well. Um, I had become obsessed with time, so I only did things according to what the clock said. Um, if I needed to go to the toilet, for example, I had to wait until it was on the hour. I couldn't just nip to the loo at any time. I got very, very obsessed with time. What triggered all of this was in the January when um, I was diagnosed with measles. Um, and the university were like, oh, we don't like that in halls of residence. And so they told me to kind of quarantine myself in my room for a few days. I did that, and then I couldn't get back out of my room. Um, I became very, very obsessed with the dark as well. Um, I would only consider eating food if it was dark outside. If there was a hint of daylight, I couldn't do it. Um, I refused to actually leave my room during daylight hours. Um, I would spend all day laying on my bed, waiting for nightfall, um, laying there watching the clock and watching the sun come up and then go back down again um, so that I could go outside. The university didn't really seem to be that interested in whether I was going to my lectures or not, and I just became a bit of a hermit, really. Um, it wasn't good. I've never shared this before, <laughs> and it actually feels quite weird to be standing here um, and doing it now. Please bear with me. Um, you will see where this is going. I never planned to do this seminar quite like this. So I wound up in a psychiatric hospital. Um, not a great experience, if I'm honest. Um, but it became my pattern for the next few years. Um, I, I was what they considered to be a difficult patient in that I didn't really do what I was told. So they'd tell me that I had to get out of bed and I'd stay there. They'd tell me I had to come and eat and so I'd go into a completely different room rather than the dining room. Um, I, I wasn't the easiest person to manage. I didn't want to be in hospital, um, but I was unable to discharge myself because although I was voluntary, they kept threatening to try and section me if I tried to leave. It, 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 was, it, was, it was a bit crazy. So what happened in the end was they would medicate me um, and they would medicate me to the point of numbness where I couldn't hurt myself. I couldn't think about having an eating disorder because I was just so unconscious all day um, and I was sleeping maybe 17, 18 hours a day um, because of the medication. Then they discharged me and my life would exist as it was at that time um, of waking up in the morning. I was living on black coffee and cigarettes. That was my staple diet. Um, I'd then take my morning medication, which included a whopping big dose of a drug called chlorpromazine, um, and I would then sleep until lunchtime, get up, black coffee, cigarette, lunchtime medication, sleep, tea time, black coffee, cigarette, medication, sleep, and then the ironic thing was I was prescribed sleeping tablets, so I'd then get up in the evening <laughs> and I'd, I'd pick around with something to eat because it was dark and so it felt safe, and then I'd take a sleeping pill and that would be me gone until the next day. Um, 
this would go on for a period of weeks, and then I'd get a little bit fed up of what was happening, so I'd stop taking the medication. Um, life would the anxiety would creep back in, and life would very, very gradually start spiraling back up and out of control again. Uh, my lifestyle was completely chaotic. It was completely impossible for me to work um, because of the medication and all the various bits and pieces that were going on. Um, I would spend my days just being extremely self-destructive in a number of different ways. I would drink up to a litre of spirits in a day. Um, and I was engaging in a whole host of really, really damaging relationships with people, you know, guys that I didn't really particularly like. They weren't actually that keen on me. And it was just a very, very damaging and destructive time. And then, of course, that would then come to a head and I'd be hauled back in hospital, they'd start the drugs again, and it went round and round and round in a big, big circle. God could not have been further off my radar. He was nowhere to be seen as far as I was concerned. And yet I was the little girl who'd grown up in a Christian home, in a church. I, had a, I used to have a faith. I had been through baptism. Um, but God had gone To cut a very complicated and complex story short, um, I came out of a particularly abusive relationship. Um, he was an alcoholic. I obviously had my own combination of very peculiar issues. Um, it horrifies me to say it, but we were about six weeks off getting married. And looking back, I can't even begin to wonder what that would have looked like. That would not have been good. Um, when the relationship ended, for the first time in my life, I felt that I was at a crossroads. And it's such a cliched kind of thing to say, but I suddenly felt like I was at a crossroads. Um, and I felt that I had two choices. I could either let, my, let this be a really good excuse to really mess myself up even more, like he did. He ended up in hospital. Or I could consider looking at life. And I chose life. It wasn't easy. Um, life still isn't without its struggles. And I just think that that's, that's part of who I am and, and so on and so forth. Every day is a new day for me. And every day I get up in the morning and I make a conscious decision that today I'm going to live and that I'm going to enjoy it. Repairing myself mentally in this way took a long, long time. And there's, for anyone working with young people who struggle with difficulties with their emotions and things, you do have days of walking backwards before you get the days of going forwards. It's a very slow process. But although this process was now starting to happen and I was starting to repair myself, I didn't need God. He'd let me get ill. You know, he'd let all that happen as far as I'm concerned. I blamed God, and I was doing quite a good job sorting myself out. So what, what, why did I need him? You know, as far as I was concerned, we'd gone our separate ways. Um, I actually at one point even questioned whether he existed, and I convinced myself that my parents had obviously just brainwashed me and that Christianity was just a big cult. And But anyway, that all changed, um, I'm pleased to say, um, a few years ago. By this point, I had married a much nicer, very, very lovely man. Um, and I was expecting my beautiful son. And they were two things that my doctor said I would never do. Two things. Um, I was, at the time that I was first hospitalised, I was told that I'd be lucky if I lived to see 25. So getting married when I was 28 
and having a baby when I was 30 um, was a real kick in the teeth in that direction. Um, it started small. It started really small. I'd be walking down the road and I'd just feel a breeze. And my head would just go, that's the Lord. I'm like, what? No, it isn't, Rachel. What are you thinking of that for? And, and then I'd carry on. There'd be a beam of sunshine, which would just particularly catch my attention. And I'd just stare at the beauty of it. I live at the seaside in Norfolk. Um, so Harmlet Cody is based in Luton. I drive a lot. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd look at the... I suddenly started looking at the sea in a whole, whole other way. I'd, son, I'd sometimes feel a little bit encouraged as well. And I'd sometimes think, do you know what? I think you're an okay person today. You know, I think you're doing this okay. And I kept finding excuses for why this was happening. You know how we do, don't we? That's so not God. You know, it just happens to be a nice day. I've just been particularly attentive to nature today. Um, I've just become a mother, you know, sh- you know, of course I should be, you know, feeling encouraged and wonderful and, and all the rest of it. But it got to the point where I had to really sit down and take myself a little bit seriously and just think, but what if? I, le- I dared, again, it's that kind of how big can you dream, you know, it's okay to think big. I dared to dream that actually this could be God. And it was one evening um, I was sat outside from where I live um, not rubbing it in or anything, but you can hear the sea. And um, I was sat outside um, in my garden on a very warm, very balmy kind of evening, and I could hear the sea, and I was completely on my own. And I just, I just knew that God was there. And I knew I couldn't d- explain it away in any other way. Um, I had to have that conversation with him and work it out with him, and kind of make an amends with him, and kind of say, okay, what can we do about this? By this time, I was sitting on the advisory board for selfharm.co.uk, partly because of my previous experiences with self-harm, and also partly because my job at the time, I got got a career and everything after I got better, Um, I was working as a mental health advocate in a medium secure hospital um, for adults with learning disabilities. All the patients were detained, and I worked with a lot of young women who self-harmed. Um, and it was very, very interesting to be, A, the irony of working in a mental health hospital. The last time I left that place, I swore I'd never go back. Um, but B, to be working with people that actually I could really identify myself in. So I was on the um, board for, for selfharm.co.uk. Um, and my relationship was progressing. My relationship with God was really, really progressing. And it was like a light had gone on. And the relationship that I had with God way back in the day when I was a teenager actually I could see that I was never really right with God back then, but now was different. I was progressing with God. My health was improving. Um, selfharm.co.uk was progressing and developing. And one could say that they all came to the perfect place at the perfect time. And just as I was in a place secure enough in my own spiritual and emotional journey, the funding arrived to enable someone to take up post as project director of selfharm.co.uk. And I think when things like that happen, sometimes you know that, you know, God knows what he's doing. So, having told you all of that, I'm now going to try and read your thoughts. Can I have the next slide, please? Is 
Is that fairly accurate? <laughs> you think a lovely story and everything, but actually it's no impact to me whatsoever when I go back. The message that I want to convey to you is that you are making a difference. You are already making a difference. The problem is, and this is where you'll see where my story is coming from, you might not get to see the outcomes for several years. We, we're impatient, aren't we, as people? We want, we want to pray for a child and then just see that answer to prayer straight away. And we get really impatient when, when that doesn't happen. Um, it was the input from my youth leaders, um, the hope and the potential that they saw in me all of those years ago, even when I was at my worst, at my lowest, that stuck with me. All these years later, when I decided to acknowledge that God was still sticking with me, it wasn't because of anything new. God doesn't change. He, he was exactly the same. It wasn't necessarily because I just got better and so I could start seeing God again. I had allowed him to change me, even without realizing it. The change occurred when I had my son, as I said, and it really changed my perspective. And God took that as his opportunity to give me the poke that I needed to start acknowledging him again. He's done enough in me already to fulfill the role that I'm doing. I love my job. I think I've probably got the best job in the world. Um, and if anyone had ever told me that three years ago, and as cliched as it sounds, if anyone had told me three years ago that I'd be stood here today <laughs> um, talking to all of you and sharing this, I literally would not have believed you. Um, I, I, public speaking was something that would paralyze me with fear. Um, up until about two or three years ago. The 15-year-olds you work with right now in 2011 are the project directors of tomorrow. The 15-year-olds you work with now are the people that one day are going to be running these events. They're the ones that are going to be creating brand new resources one day. To give you, to give you an example of this, and this is very timely, um, yesterday, our organisation, the Youthscape thing, all kind of changed around, and Chris went from being the uh, chief executive of LCET to being the chief executive of Youthscape. The new director of LCET is a very good friend of mine called Lindsay Johnston. Lindsay uh, went to school um, in Luton, and she didn't come from a Christian home. She got involved with LCT through stuff that they were doing in the school with various lunchtime clubs, assemblies, all that kind of stuff. Um, she then ended up going on a summer camp back in 1996. At that summer camp, when she was 13 years old, she became a Christian. 15 years later, she's now the, the director of LCT. Back then in 1996, when she made her commitment, no one could have foreseen that all of 15 years later, she'd be actually running the project that brought her to God in the first place. Your young people will frustrate you at times, I think it's fair to say, endlessly probably, and you'll be forgiven for having moments of doubt about whether anything you're doing is sinking in or making a difference. My youth leaders had every single excuse to tick the no hope box when it came to me, and they probably did a few times. Um, in fact, I know they did, and I kind of agreed with them at the time but what we didn't bargain on was the seeds that had been planted and like we talk a lot about seeds don't we um you know 
having faith as small as a mustard seed, for example, planting seeds and letting them take root. Um, and that adage about acorns and oak trees or something, and I always get that the wrong way around. You will not know until later on what impact your conversations are having on your young people. The random games of pool you play, the pizzas that you eat together, the Bible studies that you do with them where it appears that they're doing anything other than listening to you, for example. You don't know until later on what a difference that that's going to make. As well as throwing all of this at you, and I really, really hope this is starting to translate as encouragement. Um, I also want to give you some very practical ideas um, of how you can expand the work that you may be doing or if you're looking to, to, to take on a new challenge to create your new opportunity. Um, I'm going to look at it from working with young people from a therapeutic point of view because obviously it's very relevant to me, it's very relevant to today's conference. So, just bear with me a second. Could I have the next slide please? Working therapeutically with young people, firstly, it's something you're already doing, whether you realise it or not. Every conversation that you have that involves you listening to the things that matter to them is an example of how you work and work with somebody in a very empowering way. Emotions. Again, we spoke a little bit about emotions this morning at the self-harm uh, seminar. Teenagers are ruled by their emotions. It is difficult enough being a teenager with all the hormones and life-changing stuff that's going on. Um, but they are forced to accommodate a whole host of conflicting and competing emotions. They have to try and work out why they do what they do, why they like what they do. Sometimes they don't know why they like certain people. They don't know why they hate certain people. Um, but having a space to work out why they're feeling the way that they do about any given particular subject is massively encouraging. They may not know or understand themselves, but what matters isn't helping them to understand themselves, but giving them the space to express that. Listening, I'm a big, big, big advocate of listening. Um, a common complaint of a lot of young people is that they don't feel heard. They don't that their voice is being heard. And this can be a predisposing factor in only behaviours that may otherwise be labelled as attention-seeking. And again, anyone who's in the self-harm seminar this morning would have heard me talking a little bit about attention-seeking. The average teenager who's part of a school in your area it could be one of 30 in their class with one teacher. They may have to compete for the attention of their parents when they're at home because of other brothers and sisters and pressures on the family. They may be part of a really large group of friends, and that's great, but are they being heard? Are they having that opportunity to be heard? You may be completely indifferent to Justin Bieber. Um, I haven't yet formed an opinion. Um, either way, you might not care who won the X Factor, um, but if it matters to our young people, it needs to matter to us. And that means all of them even the ones that you really struggle to love and nurture sometimes. Um, it means all of them, and not just the ones who come asking for it, not just the ones who appear the most needy, but all of them. Can you find a way to fit in a coffee, an hour playing on an Xbox, anything? Go for a walk, have a chat on the phone. Not every day, obviously, because that would be ridiculous but regularly enough for them 
Can you give them one-to-one time so that they feel heard? Feeling listened to is incredibly empowering. Um, it's, it's no secret that teenagers live in a completely different culture to the one we, um, we did when we were teenagers. I apologise to anyone who's slightly offended by that, especially if there's any teenagers in the room. Um, but teenage culture is changing day by day, whether we like it or not. Um, when I was at school, um, one of my biggest concerns... Um, aside from all the food stuff, was um, what bag I had for school. And there was a range of different trends in what bag you had. And not just what bag you had, but how you carried it as well. Because if you had a rucksack and you put it on both shoulders, that was a big no-no. Um, today's teenagers um, are concerned with what mobile phones they've got. Has, have you got a smartphone or not? You know, Blackberry or, or iPhone? You know, um, What apps have you got? Apps. I didn't think about apps. Um, I didn't even have the internet when I was at school. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, not really. Um, I still, it's still to this day, I can't work out how I ever pass an exam without Google. Um, I kind of, you think, how much we use it now? Like, I had to use real life books and libraries and everything. Um, we know all of these things to be true, and we don't have to understand. You don't have to understand teenage culture, even. You don't have to understand why a teenager self harms. You don't have to understand why a teenager hates the way that they look or that they can't find the motivation to work hard at school. Often these things don't make sense to them, um, as I've said, so they don't expect you to understand. I got my first mobile phone as an adult. I had to learn to text as an adult, which makes me feel incredibly old. My two-year-old can operate a DVD player. Um, We did recently lose one thanks to three Postman Pat DVDs all going in at the same time. But the point is, my little boy is going to grow up in a completely different world to the one that I grew up in. And while we don't have to understand it, it's important that we can recognise it and see that. The things that affected us and made sense to us at the time have changed. Um, Teenagers today won't understand the pressure that we faced um, to have enough pocket money to buy two new AA batteries for our Walkmans. Um, But at the time, it was important to us And it's important to take time to reflect back on your teenagers and your youth. Actually, what was it that mattered to you then? Emotionally, what mattered to you? How did you feel about certain things? Can you try and understand how um, and apply it to the young people that you work with now? Incidentally, does anyone else recall Walkman's having a really bad battery life? It just seemed like five, like two tapes in and it would do that slowing down. Um, But the need to have someone listening without necessarily understanding um, is still there. Finally, a little goes a long, long way. Two minutes of your time and encouragement can fill an hour to a teenager who feels a little bit vulnerable, a little bit lost, a little bit needy. The quick phone call, the text message saying hello, the wall post on Facebook... Um, or an email suggesting that they might like to come and join you for an event or something that you've got planned can be incredibly uplifting to a teenager. It takes seconds of your day, but can make a world of difference to them. Even if they appear to ignore it and they don't reply, um, knowing that they're not ignored or forgotten by you is the point. So how can we take this forward? Um, I realise that this afternoon has involved a lot of listening to my voice, um, and I'm starting to get bored of it myself Um, so I do apologise but I hope that so far you've been able to lift out the points that are relevant to you could I have the next slide please therapeutic work 
could involve working one-to-one -one with young people that you know well who are in crisis, um, either within your own group or with part of a local school. Um, it may have involve getting to know a local school and having them identify some young people that they think that you could make a difference to. Or you could be permitted to set up an informal CU in a school and give up an hour of your week over a lunchtime to go and meet with some young people and give them a space to talk about the things that matter most to them. It was these small steps that LCET took way back in the beginning. So networking. Who do you know? Who is already in your community doing stuff? What are your colleagues, other churches, other youth groups doing? Can you share your ideas? Do you even know what other people are doing in your community? Look at pooling your resources. It's not a competition. We all want exactly the same thing. Um, it doesn't matter whose youth group is bigger than somebody else's. Um, what matters is that young people are coming along to those youth groups. Uh, do you have any contacts in local schools? Is there a way of forging a contact in a local school? Look at what services you already have and what you can provide and what you can work on. What skills mix do you have within your team? I realise that a lot of you may be lone working, so it doesn't take very long to look at the skills within your team. Um, if you are lucky enough to live in an area, for example, that has a really great teenage pregnancy service, then you probably don't need to focus on that as being an issue. What is the need in your local area? Um, equally, if you don't know anything about self-harm, then there's little point in waking up tomorrow and thinking, oh, I'm going to start a self-harm group. Um, look at what you can do. Look at your skills mix. Think back again to when you were a teenager. What mattered to you? How can that be translated to today, even with the differences in culture? Limitations. Time is a problem for all of us. If your time is limited to only working with the young people in your youth group, then that's absolutely great. That's still brilliant. If you have the flexibility to work your way into a local school or another local youth project, then brilliant. It's more important to reach one teenager effectively than to say hello to 100. Look at what you can offer. Find opportunities to test it out. That doesn't always work. Um, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll get permission to go into a year 10 PHSE lesson or something to talk to them for a little while and then you ask them for feedback and they will say they hated it. But that's how you learn and that's how you grow and that's how you develop. Um, either way, giving it a go and having an effective way of measuring feedback is brilliant. It's how you see if difference is being made or can be made. And sometimes you'll try and do things and they don't work and you just have to make your peace with that. Um, Selfharm.co.uk has peaks and troughs. I'll try something, it doesn't work, so we go back to the drawing board and we try again. The point is we keep trying. Grow. Develop what you're doing. Grow through reputation. There's no greater compliment or affirmation than being asked to be involved with a new project or being asked to be involved in a school. Sometimes we don't have to force the doors open. You just have to wait until they're open a little bit and then you can stick your foot in uh, and make sure it stays open. Waiting and listening often opens up far more opportunities than pushing and trying to do it our way. Expand, that's easier said than done. Um, expanding your services and what you can offer sometimes involves having to get funding. And as someone who's running a very, very small project that currently only has funding until the end of the year, I know it's a lot easier said than done um, to, to get funding, to get yourself a bigger team to get yourself another worker who can help you do this, who can help you expand and help you grow. Um, funding for anyone who works in the charitable sector is always a source of concern, but God has a funny way of making things happen at just the right time. So 
I, uh, I'm leaving that one up to him for now. Can I have the next slide, please? We're nearly there. Okay, things, things to remember, please. You are already making a difference. It's just that we don't always exactly know what that means or how to measure it. Youth work is challenging. This is not an easy world that, we're, that we've chosen to or God has chosen us for. It's going to be difficult and it's okay if it feels difficult. We are a team. You may come from various different denominations. You may come from very, very different backgrounds. You may come from very, very different services. But we're a team. We're in this together. We all want the same thing. So lean on your colleagues. Make links with other youth workers. If you're, if you're a lone worker in church, make a link with another local youth worker or someone in the next town. Share your ideas. We're human too. And sometimes this stuff can be really tough to do. Dealing with young people's emotions can be really, really difficult because we deserve looking after as well. You can only be as effective as how well you are in yourself. Um, and working with young people is great, it's fantastic, but if you burn yourself out, it, you're no good to anybody. So it's really important that you have someone take care of you as well. And today's 15-year-olds will make a difference because of what you're doing in them. But you may have to be patient and wait. As we finish, we've got a few minutes. Um, and what I'd like you to do is to regroup with the people that you're sitting um, near and around. I think some music is possibly going to be played. Um, I'd like you just, in your small groups, just to please reflect on some of the stuff that I've been talking about today. Um, the bits you liked, the bits you hated... Um, the bits that challenged you, the bits that hopefully have encouraged you a little bit. Um, and I want you to kind of look at what a difference you are already making to your young people and to pray for them in your groups. Pray for the people you're working with, the young people you're working with now, but also pray for the young people that you're not yet working with. Um, and pray for the projects of tomorrow. Um, I'm not going to say anything else. I will just give the very sweaty microphone to Will. Um, but get into your groups and just take some time just to pray for one another's young people and then feel free to leave as and when you're ready. Thank you. Great, Rachel. We want to say um, massive, massive thanks to you. Um, I, think, I think we're all aware that um, what you shared came at great personal cost and uh, it takes an awful lot of courage to be so open to express such intimate parts of your life story. And we're all just so thankful to God for what he's done in your life. And that brings so much hope to us for the young people we're working with too. So thank you for everything that you've shared. Because um, we're going to have a, a soft close to this session. So be, we've got sort of 15 minutes. There is a break until 4 o'clock from now. If you get into the groups to have some time just to talk, to pray for a few minutes, and then we'll be meeting again in the main hall at 4 o'clock for the final session today. Uh, but um, because other sessions are still running in the next door buildings, if we can stay in this building, and of course there's tea and coffee here, and if we just meander across at about 10 to 4, we'll be through next door about the right time. But let's give Rachel another one. Massive round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you.